This is the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast, where I explain how caregivers can lovingly respond to confusing or challenging behaviors and reconnect with family members living with dementia. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes and is no substitute for medical advice or care. Welcome to episode 39, where I'm going to talk about releasing caregiver guilt, fear, and anxiety. I have a question for you. Do you find yourself thinking the following thoughts? Am I doing this right? Did I do everything I could to make her feel safe and happy? And did I do enough? I want some time for myself but I feel guilty leaving him or her alone. In today's podcast, I want to talk about caregiver guilt, fear, and anxiety. I notice that all three emotions tend to be intertwined in caregivers, with guilt being the dominant thread in the emotional tapestry. My approach to this topic is beyond academic or theoretical. I was a family caregiver myself, and I was racked by the same emotions. There were times I found myself doing the exact same things I was telling all the other caregivers not to do. When I work with people who I don't know well, I have no pre-existing ways of communication because I don't know who they were. I only see what is here now in front of me. This means I have a clean slate and can easily go into dementia mode when working with people living with dementia who are strangers to me. But as a family member, the dynamics are real different. There are layers to relationships and years of interactions. It is like a very familiar dance that you have done for decades. You know this person so well. You have this rhythm to your relationship. Yes, there were occasional misunderstandings and conflicts, but you could resolve them. Even the conflicts probably had a rhythm to them. And then the dementia shows up, and the rhythm is shot to hell. All the ways you used to talk to them, all of the ways you used to interact with them, starts to backfire. It is so hard to recalibrate because you have these deeply ingrained patterns of communication and interaction that you have learned and done for decades. You remember what was, and you want it back. With every interaction you have, there's a little piece of your brain thinking about how different what's happening now is from what used to be. And that can really drive a lot of pain and grieving that then colors your interactions. So you go and look for help. You listen to one of my podcasts or you read one of the blogs or you thumb through a chapter in my new book. You learn a new strategy, a new way to communicate and you use it and you think, wow, it works. But then something happens that takes you off guard You forget the strategy that you just learned in the heat of the moment and you fall back into old default patterns and everything goes sideways. And maybe you feel badly 
You say to yourself, I should have known better. Here is where I step in and help you release some of those thoughts and the feelings of guilt, anxiety, and even fear that are integrated with them and are not helping. Let me start with, am I doing this right? And what I'm going to say is, there really is no right way. And if you could see me on video right now, because I'm in front of a microphone, I would be doing the air quotes around the word. If there were this one right way for every situation, I could hand you a booklet with 15 strategies and we would never talk to each other again. We would be done. There'd be no need for the podcast. I'd be very lonely and we wouldn't get to hang out together. But in fact, I do have a booklet, a free booklet with 15 strategies to help people with dementia who refuse helping care. And that booklet, that's just the start of the journey. And if you are interested, I do have the link in the show notes. There are approaches that work a bit and approaches that work a little better. The goal is to figure out which strategies work best for your family member in your situation. In fact, I even have found that there are specific strategies that are most effective in the earlier days of the dementia journey, and there are other ones that get better results toward the middle part and the end part of the journey. I've even noticed there are general strategies themselves that work all throughout the journey. You tweak them and utilize different layers of them as you go through the journey. And if you've listened to the 38 previous episodes, I've talked about a lot of those strategies and I'll be talking about them again. Every individual has value systems, likes and dislikes and personality traits Dementia can make all of these components, especially the personality traits, both positive and challenging personality traits, more exaggerated. It can also exaggerate likes and dislikes. And I've even heard people tell me that their loved one used to never eat Brussels sprouts and halfway through the dementia journey, they love Brussels sprouts. Don't know why. I do know that dementia can even change some personality traits and can alter likes and dislikes. Here is one possible reason. Different dementias cause specific parts of the brain to shrink. A person with Alzheimer's dementia, for example, starts out with shrinkage in certain memory parts of the brain, like the hippocampi. You have one hippocampus, two hippocampi. Sometimes I use the term hippocampus to refer to both of them, or sometimes I use hippocampi. I am a little sloppy with that, but just so if you hear the the different hippo words, that's why I, I go back and forth. But the shrinking of the certain parts of the brain, the hippocampus, one, or the hippocampi, both, explains the loss of short-term memory, and one can shrink more than the other. They eventually get to the same point But in the beginning, you can have one with a little more shrinkage than the other one. The short-term memory takes the hit, but their personality tends to stay consistent, at least in the beginning of the journey. But another type of dementia, frontotemporal, causes shrinkage in the front and sides of the brain, 
and these lobes are necessary for what is called executive function. Executive function involves planning out activities, rational judgment, logic, and empathy. A lot of our personality quirks live in the frontal lobes of the brain. If you are caring for someone with FTD, you are dealing with a lot of apathy, poor decisions about finances and other aspects of life, and likely a complete disregard for your feelings. I even have a blog post titled, Is My Spouse a Jerk or Is It FTD? Because the changes in personality and value systems usually show up first and the memory problems follow later. This brings me back to my earlier statement, there is no right way. In my clinic and in my private consultation practice, I show family caregivers which general strategies are most likely to promote communication and cooperation. And those strategies are different depending on the type of dementia. I then work with them and we tweak the strategies so that the strategies are aligned with the current value system and priorities of the person living with dementia. Here is what I mean by that. I was working with two different clients. Both clients were at their wits end because their loved one with dementia refused to cooperate and was convinced that they were fine. The first client caring for her was caring for her mom and mom refused to remove soiled clothing. My standard approach is to ask questions about pre-dementia careers, values, and habits. I learned that mom had worked as a domestic, was a savvy businesswoman, and ultimately built up her own cleaning business. I suggested that the daughter, who was my client, tell mom that she would not get paid for the laundry services until daughter had a full load to run, and she needed mom's soiled clothes to fill the washing machine. I tapped into my client's mom's love of efficiency and good business sense. It worked. Mom stripped out of the soiled clothes and her daughter paid her a dollar. This became a strategy. Over time, dollars were replaced by coins, which were easier to find because my client's mother squirreled money all over the house. And it was also less likely to get ripped up or destroyed, especially when it went through the laundry. The daughter used the same strategy, paying mom for domestic services to keep mom busy with activities during the day. And it worked for both of them. Both were happy. My second client was a wife whose husband loved to mow the lawn and tend to the yard. His use of the lawnmower was becoming a huge safety issue. It was a gasoline mower and her husband was a smoker. She once saw him filling the mower with a gas can and with a lighted cigarette in his mouth. She was also concerned about him getting hurt by the blades. Her initial solution was to simply tell her husband that he was too sick to mow the lawn and she had one of the grandkids take over the mowing. This approach backfired big time. Not only did her husband become very angry, he then became fixated on mowing the lawn because Nobody was going to tell him, a grown man, what he can't do. Sound familiar? He began mowing the lawn for hours every day, starting around 8 a.m. and going until sundown. He was gouging out chunks of lawn. And my client was upset because her husband refused to stop 
and came into the house for food or fluids. He would just stay out all day. And as it was getting warmer and going deeper into summer, she was really concerned about heat stroke and dehydration, all valid concerns. It seemed to my client that his anger about the lawnmower situation was spilling into all parts of their life. Like the first client, I asked a ton of questions about pre-dementia careers, values, and habits. I suggested that the gasoline mower get replaced by an electric mower with the blades removed. I also suggested that the new electric mower show up as a present. And it worked. Their son arrived with a large box covered in wrapping paper and with a giant bow on it. And son's script was, hey dad, I have a present for you just because I love you. And one of the things I do with clients is we role play where they tell me what the person living with dementia is likely to do. And I react the way I suggest they do. And it really helps to have pre-thought of responses that you can just jump into when the situation happens. I actually have seen business coaches and I've worked with business coaches who did that for me with volatile HR type situations. And I'll be honest, I stole their idea and applied it to caregiving situations and it works. So the son's script was, again, hey dad, I have a present for you just because I love you. My reasoning was that a gift would be better received, no pun intended, than merely swapping out the mower. The gift delighted my client's husband who happily unwrapped the large present. The wife's script was, here is a brand new mower to replace the old one. Both son and his father assembled the mower. The son did most of it, but the point was to engage my client's husband and get him involved in the process. As instructed, the son had already removed the blades and had charged up the batteries. So assembly was a matter of attaching the push handle to the main body of the mower. Both my client and her son watched as their loved one with dementia happily mowed the grass, the sidewalk, and part of the gravel driveway. The quietness of the mower was a plus, especially when her husband wanted to mow early in the morning or later in the evening. Another bonus, electric batteries only lasted about an hour, and it took about 90 minutes to charge, which forced her husband to come inside and take a break and hydrate because he was waiting for the batteries to charge waiting for the lawnmower to get ready and she could give him some iced tea and he'd sit and relax. These two examples show who I helped two very different clients. Again, there was no right way, but there were best ways that considered the personality of the person living with dementia and their past lives or their pre-dementia lives. And here is another aspect of caregiving that most caregivers learn. What worked one day does not always work the next. If a certain strategy is not working, it is not because you are doing it incorrectly. It may be that your loved one is having a bad day. Maybe your loved one is feeling irritable because of fatigue or they're feeling cranky because of pain. There is an arthritis flare up. There could be many different reasons why the mood of the person living with dementia is messing up and they're not welcoming the strategy. It's, it, the strategy isn't working. 
And oftentimes you pull another strategy out or you let them go for a little bit, pick the battles and revisit the situation later. So I'm going to take a quick break, but before I do have a really cool announcement, my book, Make Dementia Your Bitch, is, will be available for free for five days. It is normally $14.99 on Kindle from April 1st through April 5th, all day. The Kindle will be available for free from Amazon. And Amazon sets their time period on Pacific Coast time. So it's really starting 12.01 Pacific Coast time on Friday, April 1st, and it will go until midnight Pacific Coast time on April 5th, which I want to say is a Tuesday. Yep, it's a Tuesday. April 5th is a Tuesday. And if you want your free copy, please take advantage of this promotion. Okay, now I'm going to go into the commercial that helps pay for the podcast. I'll be right back. Now, I'd like to talk about perfectionism because I really think that's what is the driving force for a lot of the negative emotions and burden that caregivers of people living with dementia experience. And I want to apologize to my listeners because usually I record and drop episodes by Sunday afternoon. And this particular week, I'm recording this on March 30th. This particular week, I am heading out to Pennsylvania, to Philadelphia. I'm accepting an Excellence in Research Award from my alma mater, LaSalle University. So a shout out to all my LaSalle peeps. And I have my mom who lives in Philadelphia as well as my siblings. So I usually stay with her. And I'm driving this time because of issues with flights and trying to get Amira into doggy daycare. The, the stars did not align for air travel, but they did align for a road trip. And anytime I go on a road trip, there's a lot of shall we say, uh, preparations that I have to do. And the perfectionism theme ran so true for me because as I'm getting things ready for the trip, I'm thinking, oh, I have to have this done. I have to have that done. And finally, to be perfectly honest, I was like, fuck it. Let me just get done what I can get done. And the perfectionism issue, it, it's it, it really is a concern and an ongoing challenge, I think for everybody. So circling back, I'd like to address this statement that I talked about in the beginning of the episode. Did I do everything I could to make him or her feel safe and happy? And did I do enough? Oh boy, sound familiar? And it's also fun to record a podcast post my Tuesday afternoon clinic because it seems like the universe gives me messages. I will interact with caregiver and patient after caregiver. And I notice themes that show up in the office setting. 
And I actually said to someone I was interacting with yesterday about the topic of today's podcast. And she said to me, oh, please hurry up and record it because this was a topic she was really struggling with. Yes. And the other thing is I usually hesitate to do topics about caregiver issues like caregiver self-care, caregiver struggles, not because I don't care. I care about you very deeply. And I think it's really cool that you and I are sitting here and, and you're listening to me and it's, it's something very intimate and very powerful. And I'm grateful to be here for reals. I'm not bullshitting you. One of the things I, the reason why I hesitate to often engage in caregiver topics is people who talk about, oh, you need to take care of yourself. You need to meditate. You need to do this. How many of you were sitting there thinking, great, when the hell am I going to do it? I need other resources. So I have the space to meditate, to go and take care of myself. That's where my stickiness comes in. So yes, in the next couple of podcasts, I am going to talk about some aspects of self-care, but people, you know me, there's a reason why this is episode 39. Woohoo! There's a reason why I, the majority of my stuff is all about fixing things, addressing problems, because as a caregiver, unless you can address the issues that you are dealing with every freaking day, all the meditation in the world isn't going to make a bit of difference when you can't get your loved one in the damn shower or they won't take their meds. So I apologize for that semi rant, but I wanted to let you know where I'm thinking. And yes, caregiver self-care is important, but I want to give you the tools and the strategies to manage the day-to-day bullshit, the day-to-day challenges, so that there is space for you to open up your Calm app and meditate. Okay, let's go back to that statement about that I do everything I could to make him or her feel safe and happy, and did I do enough? (laughs) Whoa. Those two sentences are rough, even if you use just one, but to put them together, you're going to create your own living hell where you will be surrounded with 24 seven guilt. And where did I get these statements? I've had my awesome podcast listeners and the people on my email. I've had people emailing me and communicating with me and they all seem shocked that I respond. Hey caregivers, it's me. It's me and Amira, my co-host who's in the office sound asleep and my other co-hosts Pippin and Gandalf, they're on break. So I am very engaged and I do answer all my emails. I may not be able to give you all the help you need because there's always so much I can understand on email, but you will get a response from me. Yes, you will. And sometimes I respond on my iPhone, which has this thing with autocorrect. And I re- I've reread some of my messages. And some of you may be, may be wondering if I need to be evaluated for dementia. Maybe, but I'm telling you, it's my damn iPhone. So please, I really do answer emails and responses and direct messages. It might take me a couple hours. I do answer them. And I do enjoy the communication back and forth. 
And that's where I'm pulling out these sentences because I'm not getting the concern from one, I'm getting it from several. Here is my suggestion when you start having thoughts like this, am I doing enough? Am I doing everything? Please do me a favor and reword these two sentences. When they pop up into your thoughts, flip them around. Here's what I'd prefer for you to ask yourself. Did I take the necessary steps to keep my loved one as safe and as happy as possible? Here's the important part. Without sacrificing my own mental and physical health. For my Christian listeners, we're in Lent. For my Islamic listeners, Ramadan is fast approaching. And people, I don't think the creator, the great spirit, God, Allah, Yahweh, whatever deity it is that, that you feel close to, or deities, shout out to my pagan peeps, I don't believe the divine force is sitting there wanting you to be fucking miserable. <laughs> That's the job of ex-husbands. No, just kidding. <laughs> Couldn't resist. But seriously, I don't think the universe is sitting there saying you get extra points for being a martyr. The only time that counts is when you run into a building on fire to save somebody. Then you get the, the deity points there. But we're not here to be martyrs. And I know I had one caregiver. She was hilarious. I was in a Catholic institution and there was a crucifix on the wall. And she pointed to the crucifix and said, we only need one person up there getting crucified. We don't need, he, he doesn't need extra help. You know, he doesn't need partners up there. And it was a little bit irreverent, but she made her point. The reason why I prefer the statement did I take the necessary steps to keep my loved one as safe and as happy as possible without sacrificing my own mental and physical health? Why that is so powerful is it is more realistic because it helps address some boundaries. Boundaries are a beautiful thing. First, phrases like do everything I could and did I do enough? They are automatically going to turn on the guilt faucets and drown your ass. Both are unrealistic and they are set ups for failure. I'm going to say it again. Unrealistic set ups for failure. As I was writing up the podcast and putting together my outline, I was having flashbacks of my time as a parent of young children and I lived in a development which was populated by all the Stepford wives. I was living in Virginia at the time, and I was living in uh, Chesterfield County in a development called Brandermill. Beautiful development. And there was one called Woodlake, and then there were some other developments that were popping up. And the majority of the families in this environment tended to follow the stereotypical 1950 model of male as overachiever, working 90 hours a week, breadwinner, and female as 24-7 mom. For those of you following that model, cool. 
I'm just saying where I lived, it was taken to an insane degree. I think this is where the term helicopter parent arose. I'm more of a free range parent. Go out, come back later. And I, I remember feeling so guilty because for like my daughter, Sarah's birthday, which is coming up April 19th. Yay, Sarah. For Sarah's birthday every year, you are expected to bring in cupcakes and have a celebration. And I was always the type of person who drove by Walmart or Publix or whatever place I was near, and I'd pick up pre-made, the bakery-made cupcakes. I had other moms who literally would show up with these cupcakes that I think they planted the wheat, harvested the wheat, and had harvested their own sugar cane and then handmade these artisan cupcakes and hand decorated every cupcake had like gold flake on it. Okay, I'm getting a bit silly here, but it was like some type of freaking contest. People, it's your kid's ninth birthday. It's fucking cupcakes, okay? And I remember feeling so inferior because I was working full-time. I also was a doctoral student because why make life simple? And I was barely hanging on as a parent. And then I had all the extra pressure that I put on myself because I was busy comparing myself to all the other mothers out there. And then I realized, who cares? And my kids wanted me to be available for them they didn't give a rat's ass about artisan cupcakes and all that other stuff. At least that's what they're telling me. Maybe they're in therapy right now, telling their therapist a whole other story. Don't know. But what I'm saying is we all get overwhelmed and pulled into the perfectionistic trap. When I hear those statements about, did I do everything I possibly could? Did I do enough? I'm telling you, you're absolved. You don't have to. Caregiving is challenging enough. Piling on questions, did I do everything I could or did I do enough? You're picking at the scabs. And yeah, that's pretty gross, but that's what you're doing. That's what we all do. Many caregivers really do fall into this perfectionism trap, probably because the majority of us are women. And many of us were raised to value and strive for perfection. Be the perfect student, perfect scores on exams, the perfect prom gown, the perfect prom experience, the perfect wedding, the perfect marriage, blah, 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 blah. I was raised this way. In fact, nursing school in the 80s was a shit show. We were all held to this perfect nurse standard, which is why I think the nursing profession has so many issues. We had to look perfect, act perfectly, never lose our cool. We were expected to always say the right therapeutic thing, which is one of the reasons when Nurse Jackie showed up on HBO, I'm not condoning the actions of the main character, but it finally showed nurses as humans and they were screwing up a little bit. And I thought it was hilarious. So here I graduate in the 80s. I have to be the little Miss Perfect nurse with the perfectly white uniform and white pantyhose, which nobody wears anymore, yay. 
white shoes that didn't stay white within 15 minutes of my shift. And my first job was a registered nurse at the Philadelphia VA Medical Center. And if any of you know anything about healthcare systems, the VA, great job for the veterans. It is like the antithesis of a perfect system. It, it, it's interesting that things actually get accomplished some days. And my preceptor had a favorite saying, good enough for a government worker. At first, I was shocked, thinking he was advocating for a half-assed approach to patient care. As I got to know him better, I realized that he was trying to teach me to ditch those unrealistic, perfectionistic holdovers from nursing school and to harness my own ingenuity and creativity. And family caregivers, you have a wealth of ingenuity and creativity, even if you don't think you do. I learned in my first RN job that you cannot be perfect in an imperfect system. I mean, it's 2 a.m. I'm the only RN for 30 patients, which means I'm the only person who can administer intravenous medication. And intravenous medication works by this thing called gravity, where you take the bag of liquid and you hang it up and it drips into the person. And it's 2 o'clock in the morning, and son of a bitch, there are no IV poles on my unit. They're not there. Where did they go? I don't know. The IV monster took them. So I had two options. I could go the perfectionist route and delay the meds until I was able to get IV poles from Central Supply, which Central Supply showed up at 6 a.m., bless their hearts, and that meant maybe I'd get my stuff by 8 when I was walking out the door, or I could go Nurse MacGyver here and finagle something that involved True story, with a proof tape, a metal coat hanger, and a roll of gauze. And I even figured out how to use all this with the suspended ceiling metal girders. I doubt the Department of Health or the hospital surveyors would have condoned what I did, but it worked. Mission accomplished. And I think the statute of limitations is now long gone, so I can admit to some of the creative and ingenuity ways I provided care. But you know what? The emphasis is I provided care and good care. My nursing instructors probably would have had a heart attack, but that's okay. So let's go back to dementia caregiving. A couple of years ago, I coached a husband caring for his wife. Now, Mr. Smith, not his real name, was really upset because his wife wanted to apply her own makeup. That was a thing. She had been doing it since she was a teenager, and that was part of her morning routine. During our sessions, Mr. Smith would, tell, would share with me that he would tell his wife not to use the makeup because she did not apply it perfectly, his words. Mr. Smith confided during one of our coaching sessions that he says to me, I don't want my wife to leave the house looking like a clown. Okay, I totally get wanting to protect his wife's dignity. But she was very upset about this issue. I asked to see his wife after she applied her own makeup one morning. And she popped in on the camera. And to be honest, her makeup looked quite awesome. Maybe she colored a little bit outside the lines on the lipstick, but personally, I've never mastered that. 
Even when I try to get the colored pencils and fill it in, nope, I've always struggled. I thought her makeup was great. The husband and I then discussed the, finding the balance between protecting his wife's dignity and giving her life meaning and joy. And applying daily makeup was a source of joy for his wife. Now, true, I never saw his wife's previous applications of makeup. And per Mr. Smith, she looked like a, a model in their earlier lives. If what I saw on camera was his definition of a really crap job putting on makeup, I need to hire her as a makeup artist for me. But that's because he had old memories and old expectations and he wasn't recalibrating them for today. And maybe her makeup that she put on didn't look like what she did 20 years ago, but it looked fine. And since applying daily makeup was a source of joy for his wife, I encouraged him to support her. What really came through during this coaching session was my client's fear of being judged by others because he wasn't measuring up to their definition of a good caregiver. He was struggling with the perfectionism. And I know about 20% of you listening are male caregivers. I do find, generally speaking, that it is the female caregivers who get more into the perfectionistic mode, but everybody can fall prey to this problem. So caregivers, please recalibrate, adjust what you mean by words like everything and enough. I'm a firm believer in good enough caregiving. Let's face it, none of us can ever do enough. That phrase is loaded with a shit ton of unrealistic expectations. In fact, I'm a complete fan of good enough caregiving, good enough podcasting, good enough writing a grant, good enough writing. I bring my best to the situation, but it's never going to be perfect. And that's fine. And when I say good enough, I'm not saying I just show up and pull something out of my butt. Although I have done it. And sometimes the stuff I just throw on a piece of paper or just pull out of the air at the last minute, some of that is my best stuff. So go figure. When I say good enough, what I mean is I took the necessary steps within the context of caregiving to keep my loved one as safe and as happy as possible without sacrificing my own mental and physical health. So let's dive a little deeper into the terms safe and happy, because that's another, those are some other words that become real push buttons for guilt and anxiety in the caregiving context. If a specific activity accomplishes both, woohoo, awesome. If you can do something that results in both safe and happy, win. But sometimes safe has to override happy. My family member may be happy if I hand her the keys and let her drive the car, but no one, herself included, will be safe if she's that impaired. And there are times where happy overrides safe. 
Let's say my family member is a walker. He or she is, gets up and always walks. That was how they coped with stress and anxiety pre-dementia. That is a pattern of behavior. You insisting that they sit down all the time and you're constantly saying, sit down. You're going to fuel their anxiety and that's going to make the walking and the restlessness even more pronounced. So I have a family member who is always walking. Let's say he is walking laps around the facility and any attempt to have him sit still is going to be met with resistance. He's unsteady at times. And I think that maybe I should insist that he sit in a wheelchair in case he falls. Except I know that taking such a step, no pun intended, would make him absolutely miserable. So I leave the situation alone. As I noted earlier, you cannot be perfect in an imperfect system. And dementia caregiving is de definitely an imperfect system. Which leads me to the last topic, time for myself. Having some time to and by yourself is not a luxury. It is important for sanity and to recharge, especially if your loved one living with dementia is shadowing you and will not let you out of their line of sight. And I do have an episode, I want to say maybe 10 episodes ago, where I do talk about shadowing. I interviewed one of the nurse practitioners I work with, Lindsay Robbins, who is absolutely fantastic and amazing. And you may want to go back and listen to that one. If your loved one can be safely left alone, take the time to go off by yourself and do something that recharges your spirit because that's where the guilt comes in. Oh, I'm leaving him alone. If it's safe to do, it's okay. If your loved one cannot be safely left alone, enlist the help of a relative or friend. A lot of times you'll go on the websites, or I'm guilty of this, of talking about hiring help, accessing formal paid caregivers. That's not feasible for a lot of people. And that's why I'm a big fan of seeing if you can get a, a trusted friend or relative, especially if, if someone, that person, had said to you in the past, Hey, if you ever need help, let me know. Some people say that and they don't mean it, but many people really do mean it. And because they haven't been involved in caregiving or their caregiving experience was so different from yours, they don't know exactly what you need. And they're also respecting you. They don't want to just swoop in and assume they know what you need. This is the time to pick up the phone and start the conversation off. Hi, a couple, like when we talked over Christmas, you had said that if I ever needed help to let you know, I really could use your help. And this is what I need if you're willing to do it. And I also often hear caregivers express hesitation to enlist the help of an adult child because they are so busy. And they truly, yes, they are busy. But I've also seen examples of situations where I have a couple daughters living in California or a couple sons living in Maine. And 
mom and dad are here in Birmingham, Alabama. And for those of you who aren't familiar with U.S. geography, those California and Maine are significantly far from Birmingham, Alabama. And yet I have seen these same family members figure out some type of process where they rotate and fly in every, say, six weeks and spend a week with their parents to lend a hand, to give some respite. I, 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 I see it happen. And sometimes adult children don't understand and don't realize how much help you really need because you get on the phone with them and you don't want to be all, oh, this is so terrible and I need this and I need that. You're, you're, oh yeah, everything's fine. Everything's great. And it's not. When, so the other thing I also encounter is family caregivers telling themselves stories like, yes, my son or my daughter, they work full time. They have kids. They're just too busy to help. Well, ask, because sometimes your adult children may really surprise you. And if their schedule is full, imagine how much fuller their schedule will be if something happens to you and they become the full-time caregiver. That I'm, I'm not saying to guilt your adult children, although I'm not above it, but if you really, you're drowning, you need help and you reach out to your adult children and you're meeting some resistance, I'd really love to help, but I have this going on and I have that going on. I would remind them that if you drop dead, this is now going to be their full-time responsibility. It's a little harsh, but it is the truth. And in upcoming podcasts, I will talk about some ways to meet your self-care essentials because I do have some ways I can incorporate the caregiving strategies and to also get more time for you. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up and I wanted to also give everybody a heads up. I have been, uh, for those of you who have been listening for a while, I did a dementia behaviors masterclass a few months ago, and that was really fun. Learned a lot, had a great time with all of the people who participated. Since then, I've tweaked it. I've added more components and I even put out a survey and I asked people, what should I name the class? And I was rooting for kick-ass dementia caregiving out of all the people who responded, a resounding 10% liked the kick-ass the about 60% of the people responding wanted to hear, wanted to name the class competent and confident dementia caregiving. So I respect the survey and that's what I'm going to call the program. I'll be providing more details in future podcasts, but something cool is coming. Meanwhile, if you want to work with me one-on-one, I would love to talk to you and see if we would be a good fit. Just reach me in the emails and the contact information that I have listed in the show notes. I really do love getting emails and communication from people. I have a great time. And also, don't forget, come Friday, my Make Dementia Your Bitch book 
will be available for free on Kindle. Okay, everybody, let's wrap this up and go forth and make dementia your bitch. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so other dementia caregivers can find this podcast. If you are a caregiver for someone with dementia and need help understanding and dealing with these behaviors, please contact me. You can find me on Facebook, Make Dementia Your B, or email me, info at makedementiayourbitch.com.